church. If you will take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Once again, we'll take a slight departure from our series that Pastor Scott is taking us through the book of Zechariah and return back to where uh, Brother Tim left off in our study of 1 Samuel, looking primarily at uh, the text in God providing a king for Israel through David, but ultimately looking at the how this fits within the much larger context of Scripture in God providing a king for his people through Christ. And today we get to the point where uh, we read of uh, David being anointed the king of, of Israel, yet it is not quite time in our reading for David to take the throne. And again, most of us, if we spent much time at all in church, Sunday school, or in listening or reading, uh, we're very familiar with the life of David, And uh, but we find encouragement as we continue to study the Word of God. To bring us to a point of uh, of a beginning today, let's kind of just quickly look at uh, what we studied back our, in our last message from, from Brother Tim uh, in from chapter 15. Uh, the last verse in verse 35, because after this is after Saul's sin of not destroying all of the inhabitants of the enemy. It says, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord, Yahweh, regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. And so while Tim didn't spend a lot of time on this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it anyway, it's very helpful for us to remember that when we read a verse like this, it maybe causes us to scratch our heads figuratively and think, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. How does the Lord regret anything that he did? Because it is the Lord who established Saul to be king to begin with. How could he have regrets? And we, again, Tim alluded to this lightly, and I will again do so today in just reminding us that while this word that means having a change of mind, uh, this usage that we have in 1 Samuel, like we have in other places, Genesis chapter 6, for example, where it seems as if God changed his mind or, or God was like, oh, oh man, I really messed up this time. It's not that he regretted what he did, but it's language so that we as humans can have an understanding of God's awareness of how sorry or how sorrowful the situation is. He understood the type of king was going to be before he ever established his throne. He knew the type of mistakes and errors that Saul would make as a king before he ever told Israel that they would have one. And God looks at this situation that Saul has brought upon his people and he regrets the consequences that sin bring into the lives of not only the one who sins, but to the lives of those who are affected by that. Uh, we're reminded uh, that God is not subject like we are to sin and changing his mind. It, it, as a matter of fact, so, uh, Samuel says the very thing. 
uh, that God is not a sinner. Uh, he doesn't change his ways like men do as uh, he tells this to Saul after he makes his bad choice. Now for us, regret usually reveals itself in the consequences when, when things go awry, right? It's, it's not the general who brings his soldiers into victory. That, Wait a minute, I wished I had not done that. I really didn't need to win that victoriously. Uh, a judge never makes a decision and never re, you know, looks back and says, man, that was an honest decision. And even as more information comes about, it only confirms that I made this. They never regret that. It's only when they get more information and say, oh, wow, I wish I had known that before I made a decision. Or a military leader, under, man, I wished I had known the enemy was going to do that before we lost. Uh, again, we live in a world in which uh, coaches are, you know, live and die, figuratively speaking, on making good decisions. They, a, a coach never loses his job or her job because they won too many games, made too many good decisions under stress and brought their team through victory. It's always under the consequences of errors or in our life in sin where we regret and if you're like me, there are many times in which you are overwhelmed and depressed by the circumstances and the consequences of bad choices where you look back and say, man, I wish I had not done that. I wish I'd never gone there. I never wanted to start that encounter or relationship or enterprise. I, I, I wish I'd never stopped doing this or quit my job or uh, you know, we can go on and on and list all different types of possibilities that we regret. And the only and the only comfort that we can take as believers is is what we read again from Romans chapter eight that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Now we wear that out. And rightfully so, because there are many times in which we need to remind ourselves of that. But God never has to do that. Because God is always doing that which is good and right, with purpose, with meaning. And it's for our good, for, for those of us who love God, even our mistakes, even the things that we do wrong, as much as we can't understand this or explain it work out together for our good. Not because we're gonna straighten it out. Not because we could do like Saul and say, oops, I'm sorry, I didn't complete the task that you gave me to do and somehow do better next time. But because we understand that there is a sovereign God who is in charge, who is in control. So that when we read something like we do in chapter 15, verse 35, where God regretted or had a change of mind of making Saul king over Israel. It wasn't because he messed up. It was because he's, he's completely sovereign over this. And he's going to even work out the mistakes that Saul made to draw people into his people into a desire for something better. Again, I don't want to get too involved in a theological discussion about this, but we just have to come to terms with when God regrets, it's, it's not as we regret. It's not because he messed up. 
But he sees the circumstances of when we mess up so that when we come to chapter 16 and read in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. You see, God's purpose continues on. His plan for a king continues. Now, in contrast to Samuel, his servant, uh, notice one thing, and that Samuel was grieving over the fact that Saul was no longer going to be king. It wasn't that Saul was dead. It wasn't as if Saul lost the battle to the Amalekites. It, it's not as if uh, Saul is no longer reigning over the kingdom. But he was still grieving because he understood that God had, had made a pronouncement. I've rejected him. Now, was this because he had forgotten the Lord's word that he was going to provide a better person to be king? I've given the, the throne to, to someone better? I don't think so. I think it was just the fact that, that Samuel was also reflecting his emotional distress overseeing his people. Again, thinking about what the world was like in this time for the Hebrews. They had enemies all around. And enemies who didn't want them to be in the land in which they were dwelling. I know that sounds very familiar with today's world in which we live. But Samuel was concerned. The, the king that they, that they were being ruled by had been rejected by God. It's not exactly the sort of thing that you want to think of every time you wake up out of bed in the morning thinking, hey, our ruler has been rejected by God. But again, the word had come to him, but he was still uh, to the point of grieving. And again, the Lord did not rebuke him for grieving, but he just said, you know what? Let's move on. How long are you going to grieve over Saul? Now, when God told Samuel to fill his oil and go to Bethlehem, because there you will find the man who I have selected to be king, again, Samuel shows his humanity. Now, now, God, you realize that if I go and do that and the word gets out that I'm going looking for another king while Saul is still living, just like Elijah, <laughs> I'm a man all by myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. And the Lord said, well, actually, he didn't go back and say, you know what, you don't have any reason to fear Saul. You're, you're being illogical here, Samuel. But he says, no, you're going to go down there and you're going to have a sacrifice. Just focus on what I want you to do. Quit worrying about the consequences. Stop worrying about the potential dangers that you have going through. But just go. Take a heifer with you. Go tell people that you're going to make a sacrifice, which the, the prophet would normally do throughout the land. But the important thing here is not that 
that Samuel was grieving needlessly over Saul being rejected or being uh, just a lack of confidence in God and that he was concerned over his life. But notice at the end of the day, what did Samuel do? He went. He obeyed the word of the Lord because he believed, as we ought as well, that the Lord is faithful to his word. If God says that he's going to provide a king from Jesse's sons, then so be it. Let me go to Jesse's house and find the king and anoint him with oil. When God gives us instructions for how we are to live in this life, even though we've got circumstantial evidence to prove that this is a dangerous world, that this is a, a very hateful world, that this is a very unkind world, at the end of the day, we obey the Lord because he is faithful to his word. Even as Pastor Scott reminded us in the reading this morning uh, to, or during the CGG, isn't it a good word to know that he's giving us an escape when temptation comes our way? That's a promise that we can, we can hold on to. We can obey the Lord holding on to. But not only does the Lord continue his plan for a king, but the Lord conveys his criteria for a king. The second part of verse 4, the elders came, I like just the honesty and, and, and the, the narration here. So when, when Samuel arrives into Bethlehem, the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? Now again, if you didn't read chapter 15, this might not make any sense to you, but what was the last action that we have record of Samuel doing? Well, it, he had a sword and he hacked the king Agag to pieces. So maybe the people of Bethlehem were thinking, is, is Samuel over his temper tantrum? I mean, is he still upset? Is he looking for trouble elsewhere? Uh, so Samuel, do you come in peace? And he said, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to sacrifice. And oh, by the way, Jesse, you and all your family, uh, you come to the sacrifice too. He invited them to the sacrifice. And when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, which apparently he was doing because I have rejected him. Now that's tough, right? Well, for the Lord to reject you before you even were picked. And that was like me in high school when it came to playing, you know, kickball and during gym class, you know, it's like, you know, the, we're, we're going to reject Mark before anybody even picks him. Well, we see how skinny his legs are and we, we realize that he's actually going to be no profit to our team. But to Eliab, apparently he was tall. And as we were looking at in, this, in the, 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 the selection of Saul, that was a pretty important thing for a king. And his appearance, apparently, uh, he had an, an, a very imposing figure to where he just looked like a king. But God says, I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks to heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and 
made him pass before Samuel and said, the Lord's not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And so we see here that the Lord is being very particular. Not just anyone was selected to be king when Saul was selected. God was very specific then, but he had a plan and a purpose for Saul being the king. The Lord also has a very specific purpose here to demonstrate that the Lord does not think like we do. Again, as we, we, we have been reminded this morning and, and are very aware of it, when we go out selecting things, we, we have usually a list in our, our head. Now, some of our lists are shorter than others because we may be in more of a hurry. We don't value the selection as much as someone else would. I mean, there's some people that in, before they go purchase something, a piece of equipment, for example, I mean, they're comparing with every other piece of equipment that was ever made, every other, you know, the, the, the person who designed the equipment, where you can buy it, where you can buy it the most inexpensively, where you can get the best service with it. Who Do I have anybody who has used one of these before that I can get a testimony from? Yeah, those type of things. And then there's some people that they really don't care. They're like me and just basically say, this is the cheapest one you've got? Is it something that I can actually use myself? You know, the, the very simple things. Now, when it came to being king, uh, when it comes to being a leader, we probably are going to be a little bit more discerning. And for those of you who have lived longer than I have, and for those of you who have not quite lived as long as I have, we all probably, if we've spent any time during election time, you're, you're going down through your list of people you, you like to lead, and there just doesn't seem to be a lot of people who's checking off all my boxes. Because when it comes to leadership, I'm looking for something particular. And when it came to the king, again, living in the day of Samuel, if it were me, I'm looking for somebody big enough to, to, to knock around any other enemy that we've got around here. And somebody smart enough to get everybody else organized to fight behind them. I'm looking for somebody who's wise enough uh, to know when that we fight and when we don't fight. Someone who is able to, to, you know, just to demonstrate who they are from when I look at them. So that just looks like a king. That, that's me. The, the, the meanest, toughest, uh, orneriest looking person, that, that's, that's who I'm after because he, he's going to be able to fight the, the battle for me. Uh, now, Saul was successful. But again, God was not looking for somebody who was big enough to beat the enemy. He was looking for somebody that filled another set of criteria. And it wasn't that Jesse's sons were all a bunch of losers. It's just that there was only one of them that God had chosen. So the Lord is scrupulous in his standards. Uh, and while there might be a host of people who can meet those standards, when he's looking for one person, that, that, that's all he's looking for. And we see that in verse 11. So Jesse asked him, are these all your children? And 
He said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Which again, if we look at the, the, the words that are used, both in verse 7, do not look at his appearance at the height of his stature. And then when we look here, there remains the youngest. And the one who's left looking after the sheep while everybody else is attending the sacrifice. You get kind of an idea of, of what perhaps maybe Samuel was looking for in contrast to what God was looking for. But Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. And so he brought him in, and, and now he was ruddy, which probably means he had reddish hair, beautiful eyes, and a handsome appearance. But again, I'm thinking, wait a minute. Why do we have record of that? Because we just were told that we're not to be looking for the appearance. But yet here it says that he had beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. Which means that God isn't going to reject you because you're tall. He's not going to reject you because you're physically apt. He's not going to reject you simply because you look the part. But that's not where we start. Again, God was looking for someone who would be referred to as a man after his own heart. But when David came in, which at this point we still, we still don't know his name, he just happens to be, the, he's the last shot we've got. This is the only other child that Jesse has. And so, well, God said it's going to be in Jesse's house. And we've looked at all the other ones. And so this is the last one. And so Samuel says, arise, anoint him, for he, this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. I can't help but think back at a man named Joseph. Who in the midst of his brothers in that situation was the favorite his brothers hated him because he had a dream and he told his brothers what the dream meant that one day they would serve him as he ruled over them here we have a different picture we don't have alluded now we don't know the emotional being of all these sons as they saw their youngest brother who if he's like all younger brothers had to be perfect in every way that's okay. For those of you who didn't know I was the youngest in my family, that's who I am. Out of three brothers, I'm the youngest. And you know that that is certainly not true. It's really close, though. But here in the midst of his brothers, Samuel had, is anointing him with oil that he's the chosen one. But this is not... The kicker, the kicker is that at this point on, it says, and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. I would love to know what that looked like. If anything, noticeable at this point. I would love to know if David felt any differently at this moment. It doesn't say, we don't have instructions or, 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 or we don't have a description about what's going on here other than the fact that 
what happened here is God is confirming his choice and he does so by having the spirit of the Lord come mightily, not just floating down, not like a whisper, but it says the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Now we have some insight as to what this may have been like in Saul. Do you not recall that when Saul, the spirit came upon him, he was a valiant, victorious king, defeating the enemy. But we have no action taking place here. All that we know is that the scriptures tell us that upon that day forward, the spirit of the Lord was upon David after it came upon him mightily. And after this, Samuel arose and went to Ramah. His, his work was complete as God confirmed his choice for a king. Now, all of this is very interesting narrative. It makes for a really good story to think about how this shepherd boy out of all of his brothers was the one chosen to be king over Israel. It's very interesting to see how God is very, very specific about how he wants uh, his servant to be chosen and how uh, Samuel's been giving every indication to know that, that the Lord is working through this and that he can trust him and be obedient to him. But thankfully, that's not what this narrative is all about. And for me, thankfully, I've been given an example about how this narrative actually fits into a really good sermon. A much better sermon than what you're hearing this morning. For back in Acts chapter 13, we have the same narrative, not as descriptive, but we have the narrative. So if you will turn with me there to Acts chapter 13, Paul in this setting is in the synagogue. He and Barnabas have just arrived at Antioch. And as their custom was, they went into the synagogue on the day of worship. The leaders of the synagogue would read the law and they would read the prophets. And after that, they would ask if there was anyone who had anything that they wanted to comment on in accordance to the scriptures. And so in chapter 13, we see as Luke, as he's writing it, describes it, that Paul says, this is a message of salvation. Now, what is this message? Well, in the midst of all of this commentary that Paul now is providing for all of those sitting in the synagogue, already having heard the law being read, having the, heard the prophets read, he's talking about Israel. And in verse 19, he's speaking about the, the Hebrews as they're leaving Egypt. And it says that after destroying seven nations, the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Verse 22 confirms what we read in 1 Samuel 16. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, 
I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to, to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. This is where the context in, this, in the narrative of 1 Samuel 16 has its meaning. Because it's providing us the background and the heritage from which our Savior, Jesus Christ, comes from. And Paul, in explaining how God has been working from the very beginning through his people Israel and up to this point, brings it to a point of climax in which this is the message of salvation. For the man's offspring, David's offspring, has been brought to Israel as a Savior. As God, the Lord, has promised. Now again, we see this idea through, through the New Testament. First, we see uh, that Christ is the descendant of David. Romans chapter 1, verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Paul tells Timothy in his second letter, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Jesus Christ himself in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16, says, I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David. So there is a very strong connection biologically between David and our Savior Jesus Christ, and it's given to us countless times. Well, you can actually count them. It's, it's a number of times in the New Testament, and we just read a few of those. That Christ is the descendant of David. Uh, our New Testament scripture reading that, that Mark read for us earlier, that we focus on during the Christmas season, speaks about when the angel was talking to Mary, don't fear. You're going to have a son, your name is, is Jesus, and he is going to do what? He is going to sit on the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, there will be no end. Pastor Scott and I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to go to a conference and, and for a few hours listen to a conference that was focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And I was challenged and convicted by the speaker when he was just alluding to the, to the incredible work of Christ in the incarnation, of just trying to grasp the amazing truth that it, that, that is, that, that, that God would come in flesh. And, and, and I pray that Every Christmas season, we don't get so overwhelmed and distracted by all the other stuff that goes on during this season that we don't forget that it's really simply a celebration of the incarnation. And that should draw us even closer to who Jesus Christ is and thinking about what he has done for us in just simply coming in the flesh. And he did so through David, the one who Saul or, or Samuel anointed to be the king of Israel. But not only is, is Christ the descendant of David, but as I just read from Revelation chapter 22, he is also the root of David. 
Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 says, as Jesus is speaking to the church uh, in Philadelphia, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So not only did David descend from, or did Christ descend from David, but this glorious truth that he's the root of David. It sprang up like we read from Isaiah 53. That he is where David came from. He's also the root from, of Jesse that Isaiah chapter 11 speaks about as well. But not only, so Christ is not only the descendant of David, but he's also the root of David, which leads to this next point that Christ is the Lord of David. Jesus himself teaching in the temple in Mark chapter 12 said, how can the scribe say that the, that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he the son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This was the good news to them. When Jesus tries to explain to them that the Messiah, who he was embodying in flesh, was the Lord of David, but yet, so it was no, it wasn't as if he, it wasn't important that he was descended from David. But David himself, who was his forefather in the flesh, calls Jesus his Lord. In Acts chapter 2, verse 34, this is repeated. This is a very significant part of the person of Jesus Christ in that it explains both his divinity, being the Lord of David, but is also his humanity being the descendant of David. But if he's the Lord of David and he's the root of David, then we also have to understand from Revelation chapter 3 that Christ holds the key of David. The angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and shut and no one will open. So this is not to be confused with the keys of heaven and hell that, that Jesus said to Peter that the church would have. But very similarly, as king, you know, I don't know that we really do this very often, at least I don't hear of it very often, but when I was a kid growing up, and every now and then you'd see a city or a town that was going to honor somebody, maybe somebody who was from there became famous, or maybe somebody who was famous that came and visited the town or different things. And so we're going to give them the key to the city. I don't know if anybody wants the key to any city anymore these days, but, uh, I, but, that's, but that was significant in that we're saying, you know what, we want to honor you to the point where here, you have the key. You, you basically can do what you want to do here. You, you basically own the town. Well, that idea comes from this same idea here, that the one who has the key of David, who is David? He's king of Israel. 
He's at the top of the list. You ask somebody who's a Jew, who's the greatest king? It's not Saul. Probably not going to be Ahab. Not even Hezekiah. It's going to be David. Because David is the king. He has a key to the kingdom. And the one who holds that key, the Holy One, the Christ, is the one who can open this kingdom. And nobody can shut it. But he's also the one who can shut this kingdom and nobody can open it. There's a king who has a key to the kingdom and it is only through him that one may enter. This kingdom of God, you can't see it unless you're born again. And it's not going to be it's just anybody can just wander in and out. And this kingdom also doesn't have a broad way in which everybody can just rush through. It's a straight and narrow gate. But this kingdom is like a precious prize that someone cherishes so much that he sells everything that he has so that he can buy it. Jesus Christ is the one who holds this key. And it is only through him can we enter into the kingdom. And again, as the angel told Mary, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. You see, 1 Samuel chapter 16 doesn't have any relevance to us if it isn't for what Paul was preaching that's recorded in Acts chapter 13. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ being the one through whom any who believe can enter in, find pasture, right? So what does this have to do with our salvation? Well, let's finish on with what we have here in Acts chapter 13, verse 32. Paul says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this is he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm, chapter, Psalm 2. Verse 34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, quoting from Isaiah 55, I will give to you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another Psalm, Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. David was simply a sinful man whose life was limited to what he had. Three score and ten, right? But whom God raised up did not see corruption. Now, who is it that God raised up? Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So this man who has a connection to King David, who died and saw corruption in the grave, his descendant 
Jesus Christ did not see corruption. He died. He took upon the sins of many. As it says here, lay with his father, but raised up not see corruption. Let it be known that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believed believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses, which is how much? Everything. There's not a little bit of a law that you can do following the law of Moses that you can somehow get some salvation and then Jesus comes and pays the rest of the check as Pastor Scott likes to make the illustration. He doesn't split the check. Jesus Christ paid for sin. And it's through him, the one who was raised from the dead, is the, is the king that we rejoice in today. You see, God's plan, his ultimate plan, he's still following through with it. It didn't end with Saul. It didn't end with David. God's purpose and plan continues ultimately through the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both the dead, both Lord of the dead and of the living. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. See, that's the reason why in Romans chapter 10, Paul says that we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe that God has raised him from the dead you shall be saved. When he's king, when he's risen, these two very important things come together in our salvation so that we look at Christ as the one who God has highly exalted and has given a name above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for how he is a better man than Saul. He's a better man than David. He's a better man than any because he is the God man. Sinless, perfect, the true representation of God because he is God. Thank you, Lord, that you have fulfilled your promise to give us a savior. Not a savior who is administrating our works of the law, but a savior who has accomplished, fulfilled the law, and has taken upon us our sin, our iniquities, our transgressions, as your servant, so that we might have life, have it more abundantly. I pray, Lord, now that as we consider the truth of your word, understanding that, Lord, no matter how many regrets that we have, there are no regrets with you, for your plan is perfect.
You're accomplishing your plan all the way through Jesus Christ living in us and through us and one day coming back to receive us into his own. Father, I pray that should there be someone listening to this that doesn't understand, that doesn't yet know Christ as their Lord and as their Savior, as the risen one, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would open their eyes. I pray that they would understand. I pray that their ears would be open so that they could hear and believe. And I pray, Lord, that you would save them. I pray, Lord, that for those of us who are following Christ, have been saved by his grace, according to your purposes, Father, I pray that you would help us to have an immense appreciation and undying dedication to what Christ has accomplished for us and thankful for the kingdom that he is allowing us to be a part of, a kingdom that he has opened to us. May we live for you. May we glorify you in all that we do. Pray, Lord, now that as we commit ourselves to you, our good and gracious king, that we would honor you. We 